0: Here we go, so um, yesterday I gave uh, a little talk about insight, a very general talk, some people think it's not that deep, some people can realise that this is teaching you how insight works but there's only the general insight, there's two types of insight as I teach them that is the insight which helps you become peaceful and also the insight which helps you to become totally liberated. It's on the path, of the Eightfold Path, which is the only path to enlightenment. You know, we do actually have all these factors and the first factor which becomes fully um, purified is the Samaditi. And that's called the attainment of being a stream winner. In other words, one actually sees the Four Noble Truths, one sees things like anatta, non-self, things just don't last, there's some things which you think are permanent because they've always been there and then you see them vanish completely away. And that's the anicca. And of course, the suffering of life. A good example of that is there was one of my favourite bhikkhunis in the uh, in the suttas, and that was Wajira Bhikkhuni. She was a fully enlightened arahat. And then one day they have this uh, being, some people f- just call it a metaphor, some people call it real, it doesn't really matter which, but Mara said, you know, Who do you think you are? Sitting there, meditating. And Rajira replied, you know, what do you mean, who am I? It's just the rupa, the body, the vedana, which I prefer to call experience, not just the quality of experience, like happiness and suffering, or in between. And perception, And I could like to call Sankara will, that's its core meaning. Sometimes we have just what the will creates, the effect of the Sankara, but that really doesn't really see just the core reason why we have a Sankara, just what it actually does, not what it produces. And that is the thing we call will choice, and that's quite sort of confronting sometimes. To think that's, you know, you know it's part of the candors, but to think that's dukkha? Of course it is. And the last of those candors, I never call it consciousness. I call it consciousnesses. Six different types. Because already people say that just when the five senses disappear, and what are you aware of? It's the sixth consciousness, the mind consciousness. I also mentioned, I think in Chinese philosophy, I'm sure you must have those six senses, because much of the Chinese philosophy came from Buddhism. And again, the Western philosophy, they always say that it came from the Greeks. But of course it didn't. It was changed, I think mostly by the Christians, who had the idea of a mind that was quite challenging for the Christian philosophy at the time. But nevertheless, as I mentioned, Aristotle certainly mentioned the six senses. That was part of the European culture. So there are six senses. There are six consciousnesses. The consciousness for the eye, the consciousness for the ear, the conscious for the nose, the mouth, and the body, and the sixth one is the knowing, the mind. Just like we have seeing, we have a knowing. And just like seeing is never permanent, neither is knowing. So this is actually quite challenging to many people, once we get the idea of what those six senses are, then of course it makes the Dhamma much more easy to understand. And so, you know, I talked about how these things work. And one of the great insights which happens from this practice of meditation is number one, to seeing how these uh, six senses can disappear, how they can fade away, and how much joy that is, how much sense of freedom when these five senses and the sixth sense do disappear. And the job of the five senses disappearing, that's what we do for the jhanas. Because in the first jhana, the five senses have gone. I mentioned this in the question time. If any of you look at the, um, the Pali, which is much more accurate than many of the translations, they define the first jhana as vivichehi kamehi, vivicha akusalehi damehi and Wiwicha means apart, like you're now apart from Singapore. You're a long distance from it, you're secluded from it. And if you don't get on your mobile phones, you are truly distant from Singapore, it can't reach you. And that's like being distant from the five senses. You're in a place different than the five senses, and the five senses can't reach you. So you're secluded from that. And this is one of the reasons why when people do enter those beautiful states, it's a state of joy and happiness, a state of freedom. And that's one of the reasons why when experiences these things, one can sort of say that you have some samadhiti. And because you have the things like the five senses that you know, are not to be cherished, This is just starting off. The sixth sense also mustn't be cherished. The five senses, not to be cherished, to be attached to, they just play around, do their job. and they're also unfaithful to you. You think we are in control of what we see. But a lot of the time, if you see sort of a snake or something, of course you look at it. You can't avoid it because it's a signal of danger. If you see um uh, please correct me here if I get the names wrong. Oh, well, it's a good story. Again, get stories. If you see someone who's very, very attractive, one of my disciples, she went over to Dharamsala to see the Dalai Lama. And so when she went to Dharamsala, you can't just go in there straight away, and so she put her name down in an appointment book, she was staying there three or four days. And in that place they have a meditation hall, so she would go to the meditation hall every morning. And one day when she was sitting down meditating, uh, she was getting quite peaceful, but then someone sat down in the seat next to her, disturbed her, and she looked around, and that was the end of her meditation. Richard Gere that's Richard Gere, Richard Gere is here next to me. (laughs) And for her Richard Gere was a heart throb. So you know, this was quite a few years ago uh, when he wasn't so old, and so that destroyed her meditation. (laughs) And another man told me he went to another meditation retreat somewhere and people said that on that retreat Kate Moss the supermodel, that she was on that retreat meditating. But for Kate Moss, he said, of course he was interested. He wanted to see which one is Kate Moss. And what he told me was fascinating. He said, I could not recognize her as one of those women. But the point is that Kate Moss, which he liked, was a Kate Moss which had been airbrushed, the lighting just right, (laughs) the clothes in the right place. And she said, the real Kate Moss is nothing like the Kate Moss you see on the glossy magazine covers. And it was very interesting. I remember one of those retreats which I did at that retreat center in North Perth. Uh, We had a Thai uh, movie star, a lady, came on that retreat. I don't know if you ever was on that retreat when she came. If you did, it was very hard to get in that retreat because so many young Thai men who I've never seen before, (laughs) who never come to listen to a Dharma talk at Nolamara, they were attending that retreat. I don't think they'd ever meditated before. (laughs) Can you control that? If they say here there was a really gorgeous guy, I don't know who the Singapore heartthrobs are, or oh, this amazing beautiful women, woman come on this retreat, would you be interested? Would you just see her? And who, who is it? People say that one of the heartthrobs, Taylor Swift, is that right? No so no more, she's too old. I don't know. But say I told you that Taylor Swift, this beautiful singer or something, had come on this retreat. Would you look and see what it was? <laughs> you see there's something that was in the five senses, and that's where they play around, in those five senses. So the other thing I always notice one of the jobs which I have to do, I like doing those jobs, is uh, to do wedding blessings. And when you do wedding blessings, the bride is always beautiful. I don't know how much money they spend on going to the spa beforehand and makeup and getting your hair right and paying a lot of money for the dress and everything. So that's one of the reasons why that I love giving these water blessings. And weddings. <laughs> I'm not so interested in the guy, but I really soak the bride. I think that's out of compassion, so the guy can see who's really marrying. <laughs> With all the makeup gone on. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I, me- I remember Dennis, Dennis Shepard. You know, you know Dennis. He's been a president before. When he, his first wife passed away with cancer, but he got married again, very happy for him. But apparently, you know, because he was middle aged, or that was being generous to him, calling him middle aged. <laughs> <laughs> and so he could afford a beautiful dress for his wife, for his bride. And it was. I've heard this name before, Lisa Ho or something. She's a fashion designer in Australia. And it costs thousands of dollars for this, for this dress. I don't know why they do You only wear it once for your wedding. <laughs> so I wonder why can't you get so a cheapo dress? or something? Anyway, so he told me, he said, Ajahn look, I bought this really, really expensive dress for my wife for our wedding. Please don't soak it. (laughs) And because it was Dennis, I've known him for years, a good friend, I got out the water and I got out the little swish we use but I never dipped the uh, the swish in the water and I gave them a virtual blessing. (laughs) He owes me for that. (laughs) But anyway, the point of this is Our five senses, are they really in control? Not really. If you say that somebody notorious or special is here, then of course we go looking for them. Who is it? Even some of the sounds we make. I notice that, of course, being a monk in Thailand, you never listen to any music, but sometimes when you're staying in Bangkok, some would walk past and they were playing music, you know, the old um, radios or whatever. And I found that my ears just got drawn to that sound. I had no choice. My senses were basically out of control. So because of that, you know, we realised when we let go of the senses, oh it is so free. And that's one of the reasons why when you have a right view, then you understand what the right intention is, or rather the right motivation. When you understand what's really worthy of attention or what isn't, and there's actually no one in here, that's so easy to keep your, uh, again you've got the right view of letting go, kindness and gentleness. It's so easy to be kind and gentle when there's nothing you want to achieve when there's nowhere to go, nothing to be. It makes life so much easier when you realize that you, know, you can't judge yourself or judge any others anymore. What that means is it's easy to keep your precepts, which come next. You know, the right speech, action, livelihood. Why be angry if there's no one in there to be angry? You know, why be upset? Why have grief? You know, the people you love, you don't own them. You don't own their bodies. You try and look after them, but there'll come a time when all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will one day become separated from me. And you know, I still recall when my mother died. She was my most recent relative to die a few years ago. You know, when she died, I'm being honest with you. I was happy. and That doesn't mean I didn't love my mother. What it meant is she had dementia and I visited her several times. And if you know someone with dementia, go and visit them. And I thought at least she'd remember me because I dressed differently than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> but no, she didn't remember me at all. I mean, my grandmother also had dementia I remember I'd seen her for about four or five years and I went into the um, the home. People in UK really look after uh, people with Dementia, I was very impressed. But when I went in there, she took one look at me and said, oh hello Peter, that was my lay name, Peter. I looked to my brother who'd been visiting her every week, who are you? <laughs> she said, <laughs> my poor brother was really upset. <laughs> I go visit her every week and she only remembers you. (laughs) But when my mother did pass away, it was a sense that she had been released from a prison, the prison of forgetfulness. And it was like that, and I thought, ah, at last she's free. If you are a Buddhist, and you understand about rebirth, then sometimes I don't see why more people unhappy at death, and actually celebrate it, especially if a person's lived a good life. I mentioned this similarly to you, I think, a few times over in Singapore, just imagine, it's a metaphor, imagine that uh, that Grove was so wealthy that we would give a prize at the end of the retreat so the best meditator, or the one who's made the most progress, and the prize would be a first-class ticket to, uh, say, Los Angeles, where you would stay in a six-star hotel, all paid for by John Grove, and you'd have 1,000, uh, with a partner, with a friend, and you'll have $1,000 each to spend. I don't know, is, is that really much? I don't know. Call it 10,000. <laughs> 10,000 every day to spend with you and your partner. And the evening you can have a dinner with your favourite Hollywood actor or actress or, or uh, um, singer or whatever, every evening. And it'll all be paid and a nice um, a first class ticket. Oh no, it's not first class anymore. It isn't it's at suites on Singapore Airlines, where you can actually lay down and have a nice sleep all the way from L.A. to Changi Airport. It's first class. Sorry, it's first class. that is first class. Okay. So, and I said uh, because of her progress in meditation and uh, the service she gives that is awarded this year to Eileen, (laughs) yay. (laughs) Now, and I say, it'll be uh, in two weeks' time. Now if that was real, how would you feel? Yay, two weeks I can go to Hollywood, LA, all expenses paid, $1,000 to spend know with my best friend or whatever, And then, you wouldn't be able to sleep much at night, excitement, and sort of after one week you can tell me, "Um, can I go earlier please? And I say no, two weeks, but when the two weeks come you're so excited. And then when the two weeks come, yay! Tomorrow morning I can go on this trip of a lifetime. Now what happens if I said instead, I'm sorry, I Ling, but I've seen you've got cancer, you've only got two weeks to live. How would you feel? And I know you're a very good Buddhist, you're going to go to some heaven realms. Look, heaven realms, are they better than Los Angeles? You bet. Los Angeles has traffic jams and there's smoke and bad air. And I don't know if you want to see these film actresses or film stars, they're probably just so hard to, to live with or deal with, they probably put you down every other word. <laughs> and go shopping? Don't you have all that stuff in Singapore, in Orchard Road? Of course you do. And all having to go through the customs and immigration. Oh, you don't have any immigration when you go into heaven realms. <laughs> they don't check your baggage. Why is it if someone says, oh, you've got cancer, you've only got two weeks to live. Well, yay, only two more weeks left. Why didn't you look forward to it? Look, I you haven't got... Not done yet. Not done yet. <laughs> but anyway, I Link, that you're not going to Hollywood and you haven't got cancer. That was just a metaphor. But it was just the way people regard these things. For some reason we've been brainwashed to be afraid of death. And we've been so that's why sometimes when someone dies we can cry. What are you doing? For my mother. I was I I suppressed my happiness because people thought would think I didn't love her and I didn't respect my mother. But I was happy she was free from that dementia. What a beautiful thing to give. So anyway, this is a sign you're getting some wisdom. Wisdom is not seeing things the way that other people see them, because that's called dukkha, that's called delusion. It's seeing things in another way, which is far more productive to your peace and happiness in this life. So it doesn't matter how long you live, but it certainly matters how you live, the quality of your life. And I must confess the only times I've been sad at all the funeral services which I have done, is when I do a funeral service for a person who has lived a bad life. They've had lots of opportunities but they wasted them. Those are the funeral services which I feel sad about. But doing a funeral service for a good person, you know they're going to go to a good rebirth or maybe no rebirth, those are the ones I think, yeah, well done feel like jumping up and down, punching the air, sad, sada, sada, well, you're so lucky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seeing things, so that becomes right speech, right action, right livelihood, and just, that means also that next of the Eightfold Path, Samarayama. And for so many years as a monk, I just couldn't get my head around right effort. You're making effort, trying to improve yourself. What's wrong with me? It's just nature, it's cause and effect. What do you mean effort? Effort to get what? And then we're supposed to be letting go of things, not getting more things. We're trying to let go of the things which improve our sense of ego and self and make us more proud. That's why I found out, just the observation over those years, that those people who are high achievers, And because of their effort, they really struggled and they got somewhere. Honestly, they are pains in the neck to live with. The reason is because they think that because of their effort, they can solve problems and get success. I've seen many guys, especially in places like Cambridge, Nobel laureates, The college I was at, they had these sports people. There was one guy, he was was a cricketer, and sometimes the only way to survive is to tell himself he was better than anybody else. He had a very big ego, and that was so uh, much a cause of suffering for him. Even some of the great physicists which I met, I was actually quite so pleased, I suppose, the Sir Roger Penrose. He was the one who did the mass, which discovered black holes. He's now got his Nobel, Prize. I think that was last year. And I met him once when he came over here to to Perth, because I was well connected. And so they were having a dinner over in the Jinjin, I think, astronomy centre. I forget it was called Gravity Centre with the physics professor, David Blair, he was our local UWA physics professor. And so I got an invitation for Ajam Brahman partner. <laughs> 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 but of course they knew me. I said, so I took Dennis, he drove the car for me. And Dennis Shepherd was, he always had a great interest in physics and astronomy. So when I said, oh, are you free that day? He said, for what? I offered this dinner at uh, the gravity center in Jinjin, just north of Perth. He said, well, I think that you could have dinner. And I said, yes, but it's so uh, with Roger Penrose. Oh, yeah, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> he was quite excited. But anyway, I was excited too, because I would love to have some discussion about the confluence of physics and, and Buddhism and the mind. But I wasn't the only one. And when I started chatting to him, just the two of us, he just would not engage. It was not that he was afraid of monks, because he did this to everybody. His social skills were zero. He was a wallflower. He didn't have a partner, and his, all his clothes were crumpled. Just he didn't know how to look after himself. But he was brilliant in front of a blackboard. I often joked that he was married to the blackboard, <laughs> <laughs> and he loved it, and so that sort of, kind of put me off of you know, intelligence, is that really intelligence, because what intelligence is, it is insight, intelligence is reading between the lines, finding that what's more important than the Nobel Prize is being at peace and understanding what that peace is and the kindness which flows from that peace. So you can engage with others. So those become amazing insights which, once you let go of your sense of self and achievement, then you can relax, you can be anyone when you disappear. That means you can be engaged with people, if my brother is still alive, if you asked him. I was an introvert and extremely shy when I was young. I wouldn't talk to many people at all. Now look at me. (laughs) My English teacher at school said, you know, you're hopeless English, you're really good at maths. And if he saw now that you wrote all these books which have done really well and bestsellers and stuff, he would just die of shock. This was not who I was supposed to be. But, when you're nothing at all, you can be anybody. That's one of the reasons, and it's a real reason, it's honest, and it's true. Every one of you in this room can get into jhana in this retreat. Many of you won't, but you can. In other words, never ever say you cannot. There's you know, some big barrier for you. Of course you can. It just takes that little bit of wisdom, that little bit of insight, so you do it properly. And again without fear. So anyway, that's what I call the right renunciation, uh, which is the right effort, letting things go. You know, the four right efforts are always of getting rid of bad things in the mind keeping them out getting positive states in the mind and keeping those positive states it's renouncing the badness now you've got a two ways you neither know, let go of the bad stuff and you let be the good stuff in particular what you let what is the difference between letting go and letting be The bad stuff, especially the willpower to control and to get somewhere, and to be somebody, that type of will, you let that go. Bye-bye will. Then you're still. And then what happens next, you let that be. It's already here. So let it be. It's one of the reasons why I've often told you that when you want something more, you want something else. You cannot enjoy what you already have. Yeah, but what I have is not good enough. Yes, it is good enough. If you're happy to be here, like that story of the prison, it's not a prison anymore. You're totally free. And You try that and it's much more deep and powerful than you imagine. Sometimes, you, sometimes you've got scrub typhus, zero energy. Don't know if you're going to live or die. That's what Ajahn Chah told me. When he came to visit me in our hospital, you know all that, what he said. i tell you this, so that if you go back to Singapore and you visit your old grandma or someone who's dying in hospital, and she's a Buddhist, you can tell her what Ajahn Ajahn Chah told me. Grandma, you're either gonna get better or you're gonna die. (laughs) She can't argue with that, can she? That's truth. We're saying it's not going to last. And I wasn't ready for that just when I had scrub typhus. But what I was ready to do is, you know, even though you had a disease, you can still let go of wanting to be somewhere else and let that disease be, which was weird. It was not a nice place to be, but when you were happy to be there, what happened was the feelings in the body just vanished. So did the body and you got into a very nice deep state of meditation. Which was surprising, these things which I say are based on not just suttas, are based on experience. So what happens, you do it again and again and again, it's weird, but it's true. So that's what the letting be is and the, the mindfulness, the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path, again Sometimes I hear what some people describe as mindfulness and it's not the full, full picture. And hopefully in the next couple of days, if not already, that some of you have just been walking, even from your, your room uh, up here or to the, uh, the dining room or just around this place and seen incredible beauty. A beauty which is, Wow! Why is this place so amazing? And then you come here on Katina day, if you can stay that long, where it's really noisy, and all the the same flower, the same lake, the same tree will be there, but most of the beauty is gone. Because that beauty came from your mind. It's a wonderful thing to know, you are really mindful, but when lots of things are happening, that mindfulness gets weak. That's a very important part of the Eightfold Path, to know the different types of mindfulness and how you can get really strong mindfulness. And you can see people with strong mindfulness. They're just walking along there, ah, wow, that's such a beautiful teddy bear. Wow, look at it. It's amazing. And some the people think you're crazy, but you're being honest. You can see so much beauty, so much um, it's not really delight in all sorts of things. and that becomes you realize that mindfulness is becoming strengthened. it gets really powerful. because it's really powerful, that's where we can get a lot of insights from. You see things which other people just cannot see. they've got eyes but they can't see it because they can't know it. And mindfulness is too weak. and It's just right in front of you and you can't do much about it. It's there. And that brings me up to what I was supposed to talk about today. (laughs) 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 You know sometimes I thought what am I going to talk about today when I walk down here. But I don't know. I don't like those talks when it's too planned. It, what I was going to talk about was limitless, okay? But it kind of leads up there. But when I have these ideas, of what I'm going to talk about, it's never a, a talk which is alive. I never get into it personally, and I trust myself enough now that I can talk about anything and can really get into it. You know, I've given some amazing talks. I've given talks on. Buddhism and coffins, that's why I said about the coffin joke in that one. Buddhism and bananas, I love my like, talks like that because it's interesting, What's Buddhism got to do with bananas? And the first thing I said about... Sorry? Both <laughs> they both start with B. Same with and Bikkunis, they'll start with B. But then I, I told the story. Did you have a banana for breakfast this morning or could I have one for lunch? Yeah. How do you peel the banana? Yeah, we'll peel for us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna cancel your trip to LA <laughs> Now when you you peel a banana, for years and years and years, when I had a banana, I always peeled it at the stalk. And then somebody told me that when they watch the experts with bananas, who are the experts with bananas? Monkeys. Monkeys, yeah, they never do that. They peel it from the other end, where the flower used to be. Not the stalk, but the other end. Try it out, it's much easier to appear from that end. So once I I found that out in experiment, it was true, those monkeys were right. So that's another reason why, um, who knows most about mindfulness? (laughs) Don't say monkeys. (laughs) Monk. (laughs) Monk. (laughs) So that's one of the reasons why it's fortunate, because basically we're professionals. Who knows most about death? Buddhists do. You know why? Because we die many times, we've got experience. (laughs) Christians only die once. (laughs) So anyway, when the mindfulness gets strong in your meditation, it can discard the five senses. It's a weird thing. I wasn't taught adequately about that when I was young, it's just things happen naturally. I already mentioned that story about in the Zen monastery in Northumberland, Throsol Hole, it was called. I just, I didn't know what to do. Sometimes it's best not to have too much instructions. I apologize for that, instruct you too much and you discover things for yourself. So anyway, just facing a white wash wall. You know in that monastery, anyone who was sleepy, one of the people came down with the Zen stick. You know, they had a the corridor in between and you were facing the wall. And they would walk down there with his the Zen stick. You know, I already mentioned to you I had Sloth and Torpor. And that Zen stick worked. I never got hit, but the guy next to me got hit and I was going to have to wake me up. <laughs> but it wasn't good, it was like out of fear. And also that when I used to go to Hong Kong in the early days, sometimes you'd meet some monks from uh, Chinese monasteries. So you know, it's just like being in a coffee shop, you'd, you know gossip together, how are things going in monasteries in China? How's your monastery in, in Australia going? and he told me this story, which I've shared with you, that he was, I don't know if he was on this retreat, but he certainly knew it, that there was a a, a Zen master teaching this retreat, and there's many people on this retreat, and one of the middle-aged women during the retreat started getting sleepy, so the Zen master came behind her and whacked her on the back. You know what she did? She got, took out her mobile phone and called the police. <laughs> and the police had no choice. They arrested the teacher and took him away. That was the end of that retreat. <laughs> 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 That's why I will never do that. <laughs> I'll get sent to jail. It's just up the road. Very convenient. <laughs> but, but anyway, at that retreats just meditating, there. the good thing was again that I knew about stillness and silence. I've been doing lots of Theravada meditation before, but even though i had done Theravada meditation before, I wasn't sort of an adept at it, but nevertheless I was always willing to try something else to see what happened. That was when, of course, I mentioned already, the wall disappeared. That was so cool, something interesting. Something I could tell my friends about, something I can tell you about for years afterwards. <laughs> You're sitting there, eyes fully opened, and this wall totally vanished. Like, is it Harry Potter? Taps it with his wand and it goes, it's gone. What on earth is going on? Where did they put in the porridge that morning? <laughs> Anyway, they used to make this amazing porridge there because they used to make the porridge in a um, a, not a pressure cooker. Was well, yeah, a pressure cooker where they cooker. sorry rice cooker rice. Yeah. Anyway, it was a pressure cooker where they they close it up and they got the steam and they, it's really done at high pressure. It's really delicious. But anyway, look, I should stop talking about food because when I talk about food, <laughs> that's what I get the following morning. <laughs> I once told these lay people in that monastery six years uh, my six ways retreat I said how much I like they used to do these bananas fried in, uh, in batter and fried in batter I said oh, that was nice I should not have said that because <laughs> the next day that's all I got <laughs> as many as I wanted hundreds of them <laughs> and at first I thought, oh, this is my lucky day, my favourite food, or oh, one of my favourite foods. It was then but it's not anymore, <laughs> and I got sick on those, That's all you have to eat for you, one meal of the day, no rice, no curry, no other fruit, nothing, just <laughs> fried bananas. <laughs> the first one was nice, the second one was ok, the third one, kinda of have something else. <laughs> That actually taught me a lot about cravings. You expect so much, but it's unfaithful to you, what it promises you. So, anyway, looking at the wall disappeared. That was one of the first major times that something could disappear so unexpectedly. Sight just turned off. And sometimes you can do that with your hearing as well. The hearing is the toughest one to turn off. It would be great if you had ear lids, like eyelids. You can sort of you know, turn them down. Sometimes people who have bad hearing have those. They can turn off the, the hearing, and if you do, it'll be great to use that in your meditation. Just turn it all off, and that's another sense you don't have to be bothered about. Of course, smell and taste is very easy to turn off. And that's one of the reasons I sometimes wonder why did they always have incense in Buddhist temples. I think it was because in those days when people's personal hygiene was not so great, (laughs) it means you couldn't smell anything except the incense. Otherwise, and I mentioned yesterday, you know, that if you do have bad digestion, please sit in the back. (laughs) So no one can smell you (laughs) if you let off wind. (laughs) But anyway, one of the hardest ones to turn off is your physical sense of touch. How hard is it? And sometimes you think, why? No body, you're okay. It's not that dangerous. Why do I have to keep scratching my ear or scratching my leg or my nose or whatever? You scratch one part, you always have to scratch something else. I've often noticed that if you resist one scratch, then it's like the body says, no, I can't convince him to scratch me anymore so it just doesn't bother me anymore. So anyway, it's wonderful when the legs disappear and the back disappears. Some of you do have bad backs, you've got headaches, itchy skin, itchy nose, bad tummy. You've only got something. That's why I tell people if you do have to go to the doctor to get a checkup, or to go and see him for some sort of her for some appointment. Never say there's something wrong with me. I've got COVID. You know, there's this one guy. He went. He was like a. They call it hypochondriac. Whatever was the most um, uh, fashionable disease. That's the one he went to the doctor to say he had. You know, first of all, ordinary COVID, then Omicron, COVID, and COVID-A and COVID-B. When that got passe, I think I got monkeypox, or I think I got something else. He was a real hypochondriac. And the doctor was very compassionate, so would always try and give him something. But the doctor knew he was just making most of these symptoms up. So one day he decided to confront that hypochondriac and said, there's nothing wrong with you at all. You've been coming here for such a long time. I know your body even better than you do. You're perfectly healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. Get out. He was really quite fierce, the doctor. So this patient just walked out. He was stunned. and He walked out the surgery and out the door and he was so stunned when he was crossing the road, he wasn't looking and got hit by a truck and killed. And so of course they called the doctor and the doctor ran out of the surgery and realised it was a hypochondriac patient and that he died because the doctor was too fierce and the doctor, you know, being shocked and scared had a heart attack and he died too the doctor and the patient so because they died pretty much you know, within half an hour of each other when they were buried, they were buried in uh, adjacent grave sites of the cemetery and the, Doctor's first night in the coffin, he was surprised to hear someone knocking on the coffin lid. And he opened the (laughs) coffin. Okay, it's only a metaphor joke, okay. He opened the coffin lid and there was a patient. And the patient said, Doctor, have you got anything for worms? (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask me how you can open the coffin lid or anything like that. <laughs> Stupid jokes. But anyway, after a while, just all the body vanishes, and that is, vi vi kamehi. Sometimes people call it sensory pleasure. It does not mean sensory pleasure. It means anything to do with the five senses. That's why they call this realm like karmaloka even the hell realms are called karma loka, the world of the five senses, nothing to do with pleasure, not in some hell realm, but it's the five senses. So when we separate from those five senses, the five senses disappear, what first happens is the nimittas, I'm actually getting onto the subject. And that's one of the reasons why people are a bit unsure, is this an nimitta, is this not a nimitta, what's happening? Because we're not used to those. And anything you're not used to, you tend to be afraid of. And that's why it's my job to keep talking to you again and again and again. Look, there's nothing to be afraid of at all, everything's a gain. Everything's just beautiful and wonderful, you get a strong mind if you really, get those nimiters really strong, who knows, you may be able to get your past lives or early lives, to get so much more information about what Buddhism is, but personal, not just heard from a monk, any problems in your body, you know that nimitta is such a powerful mindfulness, you can just go and zap your body. Any sort of friend or pet who's ill, you can zap them, You're thinking about them. And they feel it. That's one of the reasons why. You know, the, these limiters, when developed, they give you power, but it's nothing to do with trying to be a big shot. It just has more opportunity to help and serve yourself and others. So, what actually happens when these limiters appear? Firstly, you know, you're peaceful, you're calm, it's important and you have delightful feelings. So, I know many people get peaceful, get calm, but they don't have the joy. Please, perceive that joy. Ajahn Ghanas, sabaya. Oh, this is really nice and easy, sabaya. And if you get that lovely character of the mind, you say you're watching the breath, the breath gets so easy. You don't waste any energy looking at your breathing. The breathing draws you in like a Kate Moss or a, uh, a Richard Gere. You know, she 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 told me she couldn't stop looking at him. No, no, I've got to watch my breath. <laughs> <laughs> okay, It was the end of her meditation that day. So anyway, so this is what happens with that nimitta. It's much more beautiful than uh, Taylor Swift. I never seen them, but anyway, I'm sure my nimiters are much nicer. Of course they are. <laughs> so what that means is, when something beautiful arises in the mind, I don't know why people think this. They think that something's gone wrong. They're enjoying their meditation. <laughs> you know, when I was uh, a young boy, I used to go to church. You know why? I had a good voice. So I got a place in the church choir and in the church choir you had to do the ordinary stuff which was boring but then on marriages, I was only about 11 years of age and so I looked really cute, had a nice voice and so when we did these marriages I would do it very sweetly and beautifully and then the, the happy couple would always give a tip to the church choir. I never told my parents about that tip that was my money. <laughs> and I mentioned to you that my parents were really poor and that was my secret income stream. <laughs> and that's why you know, the more sweet you are, the more you would smile, especially at the pride, forget about the man. Uh, <laughs> and she just warmed her, I said marriage and she would think, I would love to have a child like that. <laughs> I exploited it, I must admit. <laughs> and I never told my dad about where that money came from. <laughs> I said, I'm going to church, and you couldn't argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, we're walk over this. The Nimitis come up. Uh, one of the things I did want to say, so I'm going to rush ahead a little bit, was the story about the Ajahn Chah, about what happens when Nimitis come and how to deal with them. It's a wonderful simile. It was called the Still Forest Pool. Now later on some monks um, just called a book about that Still Forest Pool, but that's not how I remember Ajahn Chah telling me. I was there at the time, this was from his mouth, and at that time my Thai and Laotian was perfect. I've forgotten most of it, because I haven't used it now for years. And so he would say, It's just whenever a forest monk would actually go on this walkabout, this uh, wandering, they would always try and find a lake or a river in the evening before it got dark. You needed to wash, maybe wash some robes, and we had a filter we had to carry, so we could filter water for drinking. Without that water, you know, in that hot climate of Thailand in the jungles, you know, you'd get sick. And he said that if you find that lake or river, then you usually put your mosquito nut umbrella, about 10 metres, 15 metres or 20 metres, not too far away from the water's edge. You never put it right next to the water because in the evening, the animals would come out to drink and play. And those animals were sometimes dangerous. Elephants and tigers. I remember him telling me that sometimes the baby elephants... And they would be very inquisitive, they see this strange mosquito net like tube in which we're meditating in and wonder what it is and they put their trunk underneath, you know, the mosquito net to investigate. And Ajahn child told me, he said, look I know this sounds cruel but it will save your life. If any elephant does that with your hand, bang it on the tip of its trunk. It's very sensitive there and it will hurt. So the little elephant will run away. If you don't do that, if you don't bang its trunk, its mother will see it there and will get so scared, she will bang you <laughs> and that'll be your end. Because mothers are so protective of their young and they'd rather be safe than sorry about that. So anyway, about 10 or 15 meters and then Ajahn Chah would then tell his story. Sometimes he'd be sitting there by the, uh, the lake in the evening with his eyes open. Sometimes on the full moon, like we've had the last few days. And it's a light at night. You don't need a flashlight or anything. And then he'd see the animals start to come out to play and to wash. Like whole families, you know, of like uh what do they call the 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 forest deer. That was Ah, oh, I forget the names now, anyway. Sorry? Antioch? No, no, antelope, they've got it. special, no, they're, they're tiny. The mouse Sorry? Mouse deer. No. mouse deer. Yeah, okay, yeah, I think it's mouse deer. And anyway, all these little animals and civic cats and stuff will come out to play. They drink and wash themselves and then with their young, mess around. And he said, when they first came out, when the either the mother or the father first came out, they would they couldn't look around, their eyes were never good. Even the kangaroo eyes are not very good. But their ears are really good, those kangaroos. You see them, I've got two ears. One goes this way, one goes that way. So I could actually just uh, get a, a picture of what's happening all around it. And he said, those animals, if they noticed there was someone looking, there was some a human being there, even though they were thirsty, They would actually run back into the bush and not come out. And even tigers. Tigers were very scared of human beings. More tigers have been killed by humans than humans by tigers. Even though, as a monk, of course, you would never kill anything, but the tigers don't know that. So, Ajahn Chah had to be perfectly still. When his animals came out, he couldn't say, Wow! They would sense that somebody was watching them, was there, and they'd go in the bush and just hide. But he said sometimes he was so still. These animals would come out. They would sniff around. And they realize or they would think there was nobody watching. Then the whole family would come out and play by the still forest pool. And he said sometimes Remember, those days they didn't have nature channel or it was it National Geographic or whatever you call it. And so all these channels which you can turn on and watch the animals play, he actually could see it live as it was happening by a secluded forest pool. It was delightful seeing all these animals play around like not realizing he was there. And then he said after the ordinary animals would come out, then these amazing animals would come out. I remember him telling me, he said, these are animals which are so incredible. And he said his teachers, his family, his friends had never told him these animals existed. And they were so shy. And if he went, wow, then of course they'd hear that and they wouldn't come out anymore. He said, sometimes these incredibly rare and beautiful animals will come and play by the still forest ball. So that's nimiters and jhanas. These are rare experiences. They only come out and play in your awareness when you are still and you don't react. I know some of you have had nimiters wow, they're happening! And they go away again. And sometimes I think, oh come on, how many times, Look, leave them alone, enjoy them. Sometimes like a tiger comes out, I can't handle this. Of course you can handle this. In all the years which I've been teaching meditation, and that's been a lot of years now, since my 48th year as a monk, all those years I've been teaching meditation, I've never seen anyone die. On one of my meditation retreats, no one goes crazy when they see Nimitz. Instead, they get blissed out. Oh, I don't oh Oh, and I'd love that experience to be there for each one of you. Why not? So when these things happen, you don't know when they're going to happen. You're sitting by the still forest pool, this is a metaphor, I don't mean just sitting down there by the lake, you're sitting by the still forest pool and uh, you you can feel it's getting peaceful, your five senses are getting subdued, you're not seeing anything, you can hardly hear anything, smell and taste are gone. So don't go chewing things while you're, you're meditating, let the senses taste disappear. And the body gets so comfortable, it just vanishes. And then these beautiful lights come. When they do, come out to play by your still forest pool. Don't go, wow. Don't go, ooh. Don't go, what's this? Just let them happen. Let them be. Perfectly safe and great benefits. And then your mind will be extremely strong. So anyway, that's three minutes past nine. I've gone over three minutes. Please excuse me. But I enjoyed that. So probably the Nimittas part two and Jhana's tomorrow. Is that a good idea?